You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. I wanted to begin, before I get into our our scripture, just to make a quick personal statement. I'm not one of those individuals that uh, finds a devil behind every bush. And what I mean by that is I don't think all phenomena needs to be described spiritually necessarily. But I do, I do want to ask a question. Do you think Satan wants to divide, disrupt, and cause disunity within the body of Christ? Do you think Satan wants to get Christians fighting among one another. Do you believe that? I do. Let's go into our scripture. This is from Luke 10, very familiar passage, and I'm just going to read it. The question, the overriding question here is, what is necessary for eternity? Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is necessary for eternity. What is written in the law is what Jesus said back to him. What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. Then the lawyer asks, and who is my neighbor? And here we get perhaps the most famous parable in the Gospels. Jesus replies to him, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever you spent. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer replied, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Earlier this summer, I was scheduled for various chapel slots for this semester, and I chose for this particular chapel slot to talk to our campus about race and ethnic diversity. And if I've had one goal this semester, and I hope you've picked up on this, it is there is an overriding theme for any chapel or really any time I talk to anyone. And that is to remind us that we are citizens in heaven. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And all phenomena should be understood by that very lens. And today, I want to continue under that very same ethos. Now, I want to offer a few caveats here. First and foremost, over the last six months, issues of Race and diversity and justice have been elevated in the public consciousness for good reason. And if the world is talking about it, and if our community 
is talking about it, then we want to talk about it, and we want to understand it in a Christian manner. In other words, as best we can, we want to bring these things to bear against our faith tradition. Now, many view discussions of race as political, and that's understandable. But my desire today, especially here in Hughes, has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with being a more faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm familiar with another religious institution that elevates issues of multiculturalism and justice and cultural competency at the expense of their faith and not because of it. And I will say, I know of no better way to accelerate a Christian school's irrelevance than by unmooring oneself from the very theological foundations meant to characterize that school's identity. So really, what we're talking about is how can we become a better follower of Jesus Christ? We've had a few chapels in the past that deal with race or ethnic diversity, something along those lines, and I've picked up where some of our students may say something like, oh, that's the chapel that I'm supposed to feel guilty for being white. I don't hear that very often, but I, I just want to say unequivocally to you today, no one, no one should ever feel guilty for the color of their skin. Rather, we should all feel responsible for our neighbor, their welfare, their well-being, their flourishing. No one should feel guilty for the color of their skin. We should feel responsible for our neighbor. This is entirely biblical, by the way, right? Philippians 2.4, let us look not to our own interest, but to the interest of others. And in Romans 15.2, each of us must please our neighbor. Why? For the good purpose of building up our neighbor. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Constantly, we hear Paul coming back to build one another up with your words, with your actions. Build others as a brick upon a brick. And not only do I want to discuss race and ethnic diversity, but I want to discuss it in a distinctly Wesleyan way for you today to offer a particular Wesleyan application. Finally, I'm sorry, I know there's a lot of uh, caveats here. Finally, I want to share my, my goal in even bringing this up to you, and it's this. I want to give you, I want to give myself a category that is not political, that is not social media driven, and that is not contaminated by the extremes that tend to bend these discussions in malformed ways. I want to give you a distinctly Christian, and for our community, a more distinctly Wesleyan category by which to have discussions around race and ethnic diversity. In other words, I want to talk about this. I just don't want to talk about it the way the world talks about it. A couple of years ago, I was... Uh, uh, made aware of a young man. His picture is here, and I will leave him unnamed. Uh, very smart, very articulate young man. He frequently elevates Christian culture. He advocates for faith in the public realm, and he defends the Christian faith with evangelical zeal. He is, according to one close acquaintance, a true believer. He's also a white nationalist. 
He's strident in his criticism of multiculturalism, which he enthusiastically predicts will be supplanted by a tidal wave of white identity, his expression. He believes America exists for those who are white and not for those who are non-white. Now, I was pondering this when I was reading about him, and I thought, does he get in? (laughs) That's a dangerous question. I immediately killed that line of thinking in my head. It is not for you and I to uh, adjudicate who finds themselves in the heavenly realm. But a more theologically interesting question occupied my mind, and it's this. Would a white nationalist even want to be in heaven? If you can't appreciate God's image upon all mankind on earth, why would you appreciate it in the heavenly realm? If you have a rigid definition of neighbor in the here and now, what makes you think you'll be comfortable with Jesus' understanding of neighbor on the other side of the river? If you harbor contempt and ill will or superiority against those different than you, what makes you think you will enjoy a place where every tribe and every tongue and every nation stand together in a communal expression of worship to our Creator? Almost exactly a year ago, I was here in Hughes, and some of you might recall, I I gave a message on what does it mean to be an institution in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. And I gave an example of our rights versus fitness. These are Wesleyan expressions. And there was an excellent example by a reverend named Victor Shepherd. And he said this, imagine if you go to a concert hall, and you attend the concert, and you pay money to go into the concert. Paying that money gives you the right to be in the concert hall. But, he says, imagine that you're tone deaf. If you're tone deaf at a concert, well, you might be bored, but maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're annoyed. Maybe it's irksome or irritating or even grating to you. In other words, there's an issue of your right to be at the concert, But then there's a second issue of your suitability to be there. Here's the point. Justification is our right to eternity with God. Sanctification is what makes us fit for that eternity. Christ's atoning death may open the gates to heaven, but our fitness for God's eternal kingdom relates to the heavenly sensibilities you and I are cultivating in the here and now. Wesley writes this himself, without the righteousness of Christ, we have no claim to glory. Without holiness, we have no fitness for it. Holiness relates to everlasting habits or habitations. This is Wesley's term. These are habits we cultivate in the here and now that have eternal implications. In other words, heaven is not there, it's here, and it's not then, it's actually right now. Eternity is not simply about what we know in our minds and what we utter with our mouths, but it's about what we want in our hearts what we're oriented towards, what we ascribe value towards. That's literally the definition of worship. It's about our appetite. St. Augustine says that all love is like a kind of motion, and all motion is toward something. The question is, what are you and I motioning towards? So one issue is our right to heaven, but the other issue 
is our fitness for heaven. If we have contempt for those around us, if we believe that hell is other people, to echo Sartre's famous phrase from the play No Exit, if we worship ourselves, if our life is oriented to idols outside of God, money, sex, prestige, power, pleasure, if we're constantly suspicious or divisive and mistrustful, if we hoard our resources, if we view our freedom merely as a lack of commitment, if people are obstacles and threats to you and I, if we're xenophobic, if we're racist, if we don't like being around people that have different colored skin than us. In other words, Asbury, if these practices and desires and sensibilities are habituated and deeply woven into the fabric of our lives, then the question of whether or not we get in is far less relevant than the question of whether we would even want to be there. Remember this line from The Great Divorce in C.S. Lewis's novel? There are two types of people. Those who say, Lord, thy will be done, and those who don't. And God says, all right, your will be done. Let's go back to the Good Samaritan. The lawyer asked Jesus, what's necessary for eternal life? What is necessary? The lawyer answers his own question, but when he asks what it means to be a neighbor, Jesus talks to him about what it means to be neighborly. The word for neighbor here, placion, is understanding neighbor as, quote, any member of the Hebrew nation or commonwealth. That was the understanding of neighbor. That was the word used by the lawyer. Now, Jesus uses the exact same word here, but he has a distinct connotation of otherness. In other words, when Christ says, go and do likewise, after describing what the Samaritan did, he was redefining how Jews understood otherness. He was redefining this word neighbor. You see, Jews had a problem. They strongly disliked those who were not like them, and they, they had good social, political, and religious reasons to do so. Their understanding of a neighbor was being kind to someone who was like them, someone who shared their traditions, their God, their ethnicity, someone who was Jewish. So when Jesus talked about the Samaritan being neighborly and telling Jews, go and do likewise, this exploded their category of what it meant to be a neighbor. Keep in mind, Jews would literally walk extra miles just to avoid Samaria. Again, remember the question from the lawyer, what is necessary for eternity? In this scripture, Christ presents us with a picture of what it looks like to be a citizen in a different kingdom. The kingdom of this world is not where our loyalties lie. So what does this mean for heavenly fitness as a person of faith. Let me name a few implications before we close. First, being a Christian, being a Christian means Christ-likeness. It means I want to be like Jesus. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we're loyal to the brand. <laughs> it means becoming like Christ. So in a community like ours, when a topic such as race among many others arise, don't simply talk about it the way that the world talks about it. Don't fall into the groove of progressive. Don't fall into the groove of conservative. Don't be swayed by social media norms. Again, our citizenship is in heaven. Being a Christian means being Christ-like. 
I heard a commercial several weeks ago for NyQuil Z. I guess you just take this now to fall asleep. They're like, forget all the other stuff. This just helps you sleep. At the end of the commercial, they said, don't worry, it's non-habit forming. That was an interesting expression. I could say more about that, but let me simply say, to be a Christian is to be habit forming. <laughs> if you want to look like Christ, expect it to be habit forming. There is no such thing as a non-habit forming Christianity. This makes us different. A second implication, it's important to be charitable. I'm talking about our community here. It's important for us to be charitable with one another in how we talk about sensitive things. No one is going to get words right. That's okay. My wife and I have adopted and I can tell you a lot of stories of people who have said some really silly things to us about adoption or have asked some uh, potentially offensive questions related to adoption. I know that I've said things before that could have been offensive to others, but those others gently corrected me. They were kind to me. Uh, they, they reframed how I thought about something. Now, if someone says something hateful, rude, mean, right, Different, different situation. But something I have shared with many all the way back from this summer is have an attitude, have a posture of bringing others to the table. Bring others to the table. We don't need to self-police each other, but let's bring one another to the table in acts of love and charity. And you see here, the issue is not just the words that come out of our mouth. The issue is what I will call the tilt of our heart. What do I mean by this? My wife and I, when we were in college, I remember a disagreement we were having over a rule. And we were going back and forth, and I was making my case, and she was making her case. But finally, she said, let me ask you something. You keep talking about this rule, and you're making your case. But as you're making your argument, are you trying to get as close to Jesus Christ as you can? Or are you trying to get as close to the world as allowable? She said, because there's a difference. That ended the conversation. She was right. It wasn't about what was coming out of my mouth. It wasn't about the rule. It was about where was my heart tilted in the conversation. Let's correct each other with grace. And by that same grace, let's be correctable. <laughs> but always, whether you're the one correcting or the one corrected, may our hearts be tilted towards being more like Christ and tilted towards a genuine, empathic, Christ-centered love towards others. This makes us different. You see a theme. Third, what we do in the here and in the now matters. If you've had me for class, you have heard this C.S. Lewis quote. I'll even try to work it into a stats class because it's that important. He says, people often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God wags his finger and says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. Lewis says, I don't think that's the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, that part of you that tilts into something a little different than what it was before. Each of us at each moment is progressing from the one state to the other. 
Did you catch that? We're becoming something right now. You and I, in our choices, in the cultivation of our desire, in the things that we worship, we are becoming something. The question is, what are you becoming? When the Levite and the priest walked past the Jew in Jesus' story in Luke 10, what were they becoming? What did that choice make them? I get it. They remained ceremonially clean, but inside their hearts were hardened. They were tilted the wrong way. They missed an opportunity to contribute to the kingdom. They missed an opportunity to make heaven more familiar. Seeing our actions against an eternal backdrop, this makes us different. Last implication is proximity. The Samaritan crossed the street. Our moral sensibilities are most acute when we are in the presence of others. It's a fact. Our moral sensibilities are most acute when we're in the presence of others. I benefit in my position that I work with people on our cabinet that when things ratchet up, when things get intense, they have the maturity to put a phone down or to turn the computer off and meet in person. Because things are different when we come together in approximate way. It changes things. It makes what is abstract concrete. It transforms ideas and concepts into real world flesh and blood. It moves us from statistics to a story. This is why, students, I'll just carefully tell you, and I say this as generously as I can, I'm not wagging my finger. This is why social media is so dangerous for you and I. It's disconnected, it's personal, it's abstract. And there's much to say here, but I would invite you, I, I really do mean this, read Proverbs once or twice or 50 times. <laughs> Bring that to bear against the norms that constitute social media. I promise it will be an illuminating, if not uncomfortable, experience. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is the God who comes near. It is not the God of deism that's tucked away in the corner of the universe, that's inept and impotent. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who comes near. This is evident throughout the biblical witness. My favorite psalm is Psalm 35, 22. Oh Lord, you have seen these things. Do not be silent. Do not be far. The psalmist is saying, he's crying out to the God who sees and the God who speaks and the God who comes near. That is the God we serve. Jesus was Emmanuel. God with us, and not just God with us, but the God among us, the God that breaks bread with us, the God that cries with us, the God that suffers with us. God is proximate, and proximity and relationships, they change us, they build empathy, they breed compassion, they transform perspective, they elicit understanding, and it weakens our commitments to abstract political concepts. I'm not saying being apolitical, but I'm saying those things are moderated when they're brought to the foot of the cross. A good friend of mine is a farmer in northern Indiana, very conservative guy. 
He's been a close friend for a long time. Now, this community that he lives in is unique because there is a large influx of Hispanic immigrants from Mexico. And I'll tell you, this has created some, some strain and some conflict in this community. Several years ago, my friend went down to a region in Mexico. Uh, it's a region that has uh, been very resource uh, depleted. It's a hard area. He said, I remember seeing mothers walking up onto trash heaps, just trying to find a piece of lettuce that had not yet rotted that they could feed their kids, trying to find a diaper that had been used that maybe they could use again. He came back from that trip, and he told me, I'll never think about immigration the same way. He's still a conservative guy, but he was moderated in how he understood that. He was overwhelmed with compassion. He saw with the eyes of Jesus Christ in that moment, and it changed him. Asbury, choosing proximate, face-to-face, flesh-and-blood engagement toward each other, even when it's difficult, even when it's vulnerable, even when it's messy, even when it's hard work, this makes us different. Let me conclude Great parable, the parable of the long spoons. A woman in the twilight of her life uh, on her deathbed goes into death, experiences the great hereafter, but then comes back to life. She shares this with her son. I've gone into eternity. What did you see? He says. She says, I saw heaven and I saw hell. She describes it. I came upon a door and behind it was hell. What I saw there confounded me. There was a dining hall filled with rows of tables, each table teeming with a magnificent feast. It looked and smelled delicious, yet the people seated around the tables were emaciated and sickly, moaning with hunger. As I came closer, I realized that each person held a very long spoon. With it, they could reach the feast, but the spoon was too long. Though they tried and tried again, they couldn't bring nourishment to their mouth. In spite of the abundance before them, they were starving. She continued, I left this horrid place and opened a new door, one that led to heaven. Inside, I was surprised to see the very same scene before my eyes, a dining hall filled with row upon row of tables, and on those tables, a marvelous feast. But instead of moaning with hunger, the people around the tables were sitting contentedly, talking with one another, sated from the abundance before them. Like those in hell, These people were holding very long spoons. As I watched, a woman dipped her spoon into a bowl of stew before, but rather than struggling to feed herself, she extended her spoon out and fed the man seated across from her. This person, now satisfied and no longer hungry, gave thanks and returned the favor, leaning across the table to feed the woman. I suddenly understood the difference between heaven and hell, the old woman said, It is neither the qualities of the place nor the abundance of resources, but the way people treat each other. This parable reflects the theological heritage of St. Augustine, John Wesley, C.S. Lewis, and others. We will love and we will desire our way into eternity, but the nature of our eternity will be proportionate to the nature of our love.
Love, says John Wesley, prepares us for and adorns us in eternity. Thus, what we love in attention to what is shaping our lives, it matters. <laughs> it has eternal significance. This has enormous implications for every dimension of our life, including race and ethnic diversity. I want us to do the hard work in our community and in the church of loving our neighbor, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the color of our skin. I want us to love our neighbor, to speak to our neighbor, and partner with our neighbor in ways that make us look more Christ-like. Not a fan of the brand, Christ-like. Not in ways that make us look more like the world, but hearts that are tilted towards Christ. Jesus, how can I look more like you? There was a woman this summer when we had a day of prayer. She must be close to 90. But I saw on her uh, Asbury Facebook page, she said, Lord, I don't want to miss this. And I thought, oh, I want that kind of heart, that I don't want to miss it when I'm that age. I want us to be proximate. I want us to grow in empathy, understanding, and compassion. And Asbury, I want us to be fit, not just our right to heaven, but our fitness for it. Heaven's not there, it's here. It's not then, it's now. What we do now matters. I'll just end with a poem by Emily Dickinson. She just says, Who has not found the heaven below will fail of it above. God's residence is next to mine. His furniture is love. If we can't figure out heaven here and live into those kingdom values, We'll fail of it above. I want us to be fit in this community. I want us to cultivate the sensibilities that make heaven familiar to us now. And I want the world to be better for it because we're different. That's my appeal, that we are different, holy, purified, set apart. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't miss this. Thank you for this community. Thank you that this is a place you have inhabited. It's a place you inhabit now, and it's a place we know you will come. Lord, may our beha behaviors be hospitable to your presence. And God, I pray that we would be fit across every area, whether it's race and ethnic diversity or all areas of our life, Lord. May we be tilted toward Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.